this week, the Comics Guys Explain the History of Marvel, Part 2. So, if you listened to the last part of the podcast, which I would suggest you do before listening to this one, <laughs> the beginning of Marvel, and the story mainly following a man named Goodman, and from here we're going to pick up post-World War II, with everyone coming home, including Stan Lee. Right. So once again, uh, special thanks to Jess Nevins and Sean Howe, uh, both of whom have written excellent stuff about uh, this company before and gave us a lot of background. So yeah, so it's as the war is coming to an end, Martin Goodman is still trying, like once again, Martin Goodman doesn't love superheroes, right? It's not like he's in this for the art. He's in this to make some money. And by the end of the war, it's starting to be, you know, it's starting to be clear that sales are starting to go down. And one of the ways that Goodman, it's not, it's not bad yet. He doesn't have to fire anybody, but he's looking to improve things. And one of the things that he tries to do is realizes that uh, his superhero comics are basically only selling to boys, right? There aren't very many girls that are buying superhero comics, but there's a bunch of girls who are buying comics and he wants to kind of like reach out to them. He wants to be in that market because there's an awful lot of girls and he thinks that they can, you know, he could be, uh, uh, you know, just as successful with a different line over you know, making making romance comics, making, you know, kind of like uh, just with female characters. And so he first starts doing in like late 44, early 45, a bunch of kind of like young girls going out into the world and getting jobs kind of comics, right? Like these are the stories. They're romance comics, but they're not just romance, right? Like they're about following a character and the character you know, like it recurs every issue as opposed to most romance comics where it's like a brand new character every month. And they have adventures and yeah, they try to get dates and that kind of thing, but they're also trying to like navigate the workplace for the first time. And this is kind of, once again, part of the pop culture zeitgeist, right? Like during the war, a lot of women went into the workplace for the first time, you know, uh, just to replace all of the men who were off fighting the war, right? So there's a series of timely comics that come out in 44 and 45 that this is kind of like the, 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 theme of them, right? Millie the model is the, kind of the most famous of them because she lived well on into the 60s. And it's the adventures of a young woman who becomes a fashion model. But there's also Tessie the typist who, you know, is a young woman who becomes a secretary, basically, and like a high-powered, you know, business downtown Manhattan. Nellie the nurse, you're starting to catch the theme here, I think, for this, who, you know, a young woman who becomes a nurse. And then there's also the high school-aged character to try to capture some of that, like, Archie uh, fan base basically called Patsy and her friends, which stars a young woman called Patsy Walker. And of course she will go on to be tremendously important in the Marvel universe later. But right now she is basically the star of a, you know, teenage Archie style, you know, high school hijinks comic. Those do quite well. And, you know, uh, uh, Martin's kind of like, wow, we should have been trying to sell to girls all along. These are selling really great. I'm going to keep churning these out, but also we need more female superheroes. Right? Like maybe we can get the girls that are reading Millie the Model and Tessie the Typist to come read our superhero comics if we put more female superheroes into them. And so he creates a series or has creates, you know, uh, hires his freelancers to create, because obviously he wasn't writing anything, a bunch of uh, superheroines starting in 1945, like before the war is officially over, but it's really it's the last year of the war. And during that stretch, he creates Miss Fury and Miss America. And then a couple of years later, the Blonde Phantom and Venus. These characters, you know, come on, they're, they're the star, you know, superheroine characters. 
also in the main comics, they're, they're big comics, he creates a uh, kind of like female sidekick, like a distaff version of each of his three most famous characters, right? And gives them like a new sidekick, right? Instead of hanging around with Toro and Bucky uh, a- anymore, uh, the Human Torch and Captain America now have Sun Girl and Golden Girl uh, as their sidekicks, right? To, you know the idea that you know like an adult male superhero is hanging around with a teenage you know costume sidekick girl somehow really never occurs to anybody as a potential problem the meanwhile submariner uh gets uh namora uh who is his cousin uh and another you know like atlantean princess basically who helps him in a bunch of his adventures there's no kind of you know romantic tension in any of these uh titles at no point it's it's you know um just business, clearly. Uh, Stan Lee comes back, you know, before the war is quite over. He comes back in 1945 and is kind of like assigned most of these to to create um, and heads right to work with him, just charges out the door. He's writing Miss America and Miss Fury, and he's writing Captain America with Golden Girl. He also sees the success that uh, DC has had, that uh, um, All-American in particular has had, with superhero teams, with the Justice Society, and uh, the the, uh, uh, Seven Soldiers of Victory. And so he tries to create a superhero team himself. All of the heroes who are starring in all winners comics, uh, basically there's two issues in which they come together and form a superhero team. Captain America and the Human Torch and Submariner and the Wizard and Miss America, they become the all winners squad. Um, And that basically appears in two issues of all winners uh, comics doesn't sell any better than the previous issues of All Winners, so they cancel it. They're, they're just like, yeah, well, that didn't work. And that same kind of like Martin Goodman not ever giving anything like a long time chance to fail, right? Like it either wasn't going to be a hit out the door or we weren't going to bother. And it wasn't a hit out the door, so they didn't bother. Stan in his personal life, when he's come back from the war, you know, he was a kid for the, his first stretch working for Timely. But now that he's back here, you know, it's three or four years later, he's, he's a grown man now. He's in his 20s and he's, you know, right? So he gets married. He marries a woman named jo- uh, Joan Bukok in 1947. And at the same time, Stan's mother dies in 1947. And Stan has a younger brother who is still a young teen at this point. He's like, I think, 13 or 14 when, when mom dies. And so Stan and Joan basically... They don't formally adopt him, but but Larry Lieber moves in with Stan and Joan to live with them uh, in 1947-48, uh, you know, to like finish high school. And Larry starts working, uh, you know, kind of like his side job, you know, evenings and weekends and that kind of thing, working for uh, Martin Goodman. You know, once again, it's their, their cousin of uh, Martin's wife. So they've got, by this point, they've built up a nice collection of freelancers uh, and a nice collection of, of staff artists that are, you know, doing this work for them. Not only do they still have uh, Vince Vago and Al Avison, but by that point, Gene Colan is a kid who has started with them. Dan DiCarlo, who will go on to be much more famous as kind of like the Archie artist of the 50s, uh, gets his start writing for, uh, doing art for Timely. Mike Sikowski uh, is just a baby at this point, um, will go on to be one of the original Justice League artists. Um, so a lot of, you know, like young guys are getting their start working at Timely superhero sales start to die off in about 1947. And Goodman starts trying to replace them as quickly as possible, you know, once the sales numbers start drop with other genres. 
he starts putting out more Westerns. He puts out a bunch of horror, a bunch of like weird horror stuff. And at the same time, as his sales are dropping, he starts canning staff people and decides, puts more and more of the workload on freelancers. And so by like the end of 1948, pretty much Stan and Larry are the only two people working in the office. Uh, for timely anymore, right? And part of their job is just coordinating freelancers to get their stuff done. Captain America, uh, well, let's see, uh, Marvel Mystery gets canceled, Human Torch gets canceled, Submariner gets canceled. Captain America uh, briefly becomes uh, Captain America's Weird Tales. And Captain America is only like a tiny part of what's going on in Captain America's own comic because they're mostly strange you know, horror titles basically for, for the last few issues. Um, so the street date of the last issue of Captain America's Weird Tales is uh, February 1950. So it was out by the end of uh, late 1949. So mm. it's pretty clear that, you know, like comics are kind of a, kind of, kind of a run, right? That's we're, 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 we're out of stuff and, uh, or out of superheroes. And Goodman is experimenting with a bunch of other things. Lee gets another try to do a superhero because Stan Lee really loves superheroes. And he tries Marvel Boy again. He basically takes the name of a Simon and Kirby character uh, and creates a new character with the same name who is now a science fiction hero, right? Like he's kind of a superhero. I mean, he's got a cape and he's got superpowers, but his adventures all take place, you know, on like the planet Uranus and stuff, right? So he's, you know, not really, they try it as a genre thing. Um, once again, Martin, Gibman, Martin Goodman gives that two issues. It doesn't sell, so he changes the title uh, to Astonishing with issue number three and chucks Marvel Boy out of the, out of the strip. And so, you know, they kind of get out of the superhero business. By 1950, really, DC and to a lesser extent, Fawcett, but they're kind of getting out of it too. DC is pretty much kind of the last one standing doing any superhero stuff at all. Timely right. is one of the other titles that's kind of fallen away. Quality isn't doing them anymore. Fox is out of business. Uh, you know, all of these other titles have, have, have left. But Timely still exists, right? They're doing these, uh, you know, the, the, the girls' titles, right? Millie the Model and Patsy are still going. They've got some Westerns. They've got some horror. They've got a few other things. In 1951, Goodman pretty much stops using Timely as the name of his... Uh, comic book publisher, because by that point, he has changed the name of his distribution company from Mutual Magazine to Atlas um, and came up with a cool new logo and transferred a bunch of the assets from Mutual to Atlas and everything as part of his, you know, like financial shell game that he was already doing on the side anyway, right? Like, you know, right. Mutual basically went away as a company and was replaced by Atlas. Uh, so Atlas is now kind of like the company at the top of the publishing side of all of Goodman's uh, businesses. And in 1951, he changes using uh, Timely as the main logo on his comics to the Atlas logo. Um, but still, at that point, Atlas is the umbrella name for what has been broken down in by historians, uh, you know, when they actually kind of like went back and, and studied the history of this. At one point, there are 59 different companies under the name Atlas, all of which had Martin Goodman's office address as their business address. So there are 59 different quote unquote companies operating with a total of like three employees between them, <laughs> right at this point. So some of the comics that come out in the 50s are called Lion Books. Some of them are called Red Circle Books. 
uh, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but the bulk of them are now called Atlas. And so kind of when we refer to the ages of Marvel Comics, this is the age of the Atlas comics that are coming out. Um, and they're still doing pulps, right? They're still making, uh, making money doing them. In fact, that's where most of the company's money is coming from. At this point, the magazine management company, the Atlas, uh, uh, you know, like uh, pulp publisher company is doing Swank, Stag, Bachelor, for men only, you know, a bunch of like men's titles, right? And at this point, of course, you know, it's like, it's 1951, 1952, the, you know, uh, Playboy doesn't exist, right? There's no nudity, but there's, right. you know, it, it's pretty clear. This is men's entertainment, right? There's some, you know, like basically dirty jokes and women in their underwear a lot, you know, in the, in these magazines, but there's also like pulpy adventure stories about explorers and soldiers of fortune traveling the world and, you know, occasionally fighting monsters or, you know, big game hunters in Africa, that kind of thing, um, like makes up the, the, the fiction of this, right? Um, or two-fisted detectives, right? And some of the most famous writers of the 60s and 70s are, get their start here. Mickey Spillane does his first detective stories for magazine management pulps. Uh, Mario Puzo, who will go on to write Godfather, uh, is a staff writer for um, Martin Goodman at this point. Uh, Martin Cruz Smith, uh, who wrote a bunch of great mysteries and like you know thrillers uh, in the 70s and 80s, gets his start there. Um, and you know, so this is this is where most of the money is being made. So they're doing a bunch of men's comics too, right? They're doing a bunch of comics that are aimed at mostly at young men. In fact, one of the titles is called Young Men. But then they also have Men's Adventure and a bunch of other kind of like similar titles like that. Stan is still the editor. And Stan, of course, still loves superheroes. It makes him very sad that superheroes have gone away. He wishes he could be writing them. And he hire, rehires Bill Everett, who had created Submariner, brings him on board as a uh, you know, staff artist. And the two of them hatch the idea of like, let's try. Let's try bringing back these characters, right? We're not going to have all the zillions of characters that we had before that all stunk. We're just going to concentrate on our big three because they used to sell really well. And I bet if we brought them back, we could make something out of them, right? Smart. We could still like turn some money. So he says, okay, we're going to bring back the Human Torch and Submariner and Captain America and just those three. And we're going to publish them in Young Men, Men's Adventures. And in fact, uh, they bring back Captain America comics, starting with, you know, like the next number in line and Submariner comics, starting with the next number in line and put them out in 1953. Mm -hmm. So these three characters between them appear in five issues of Young Men, three issues of Captain America comics in the 50s, 10 issues of Submariner and two issues of Men's Adventure. Right. Right. So that's 20 comics total over the course of like two years. They get 20 issues out. Sid Shores, Dick Ayers do most of the art. Bill Everett, you know, it does his Submariner stuff. Stan's writing most of the scripts. Captain America no longer fights Nazis. Now he's fighting commies, right? In fact, the Red Skull changes from being a Nazi bad guy to a communist bad guy without right. changing any of his shtick, right? In fact, if anything, Red Skull makes more sense now that he's a commie, right? <laughs> These are not very good comics but they're not bad they're kind of exciting um but those 20 stories and they all none of them sell and they all get canceled 
right? Like all of, all four of those comics wind up getting canceled. Those 20 stories, though, are incredibly important to Marvel history, to Marvel canon, because it's in those stories that a whole bunch of plot elements that will come back later are first established. The idea that there's more than one Captain America and that one of them was a commie fighter in the 50s. The commie smasher. The commie smasher, right. The, the William Burnside uh, version of Captain America basically comes from these comics. Right, those are, the, those are the actual issues that he appeared in. Right. The uh, Human Torch stories tell the whole story of like him as an android and like accidentally nearly blowing up, and like how his android body came to, uh, you know, like be destroyed at the end of his or be deactivated at the end of his set of stories. And here for this, that directly leads into the creation of the Vision, uh, fifteen years later by Roy Thomas. Right. Right. These are the plots that like tell that that tell the backstory of how the Vision gets created. Mm-hmm. The Submariner stories tell a bunch of stuff, a bunch of details about Atlantis that had never been revealed before that writers you know, will use in the 60s and 70s and from then on, uh, introducing a bunch of characters that are going to appear for, you know, for, like, for the first time. You know, th- there's, a, there's a version of Krang, basically, who like, appears in the Submariner stories, and another character who, even though the name is different, it clearly will turn out to be Fen uh, you know, from Atlantis. So like a, a lot of backstory gets kind of like filled in these these 20 individual comics made no impact whatsoever on sales right like none of them sold at the time but went on to be huge for uh for for marvel later as a source of canon as a source of stories Mm -hmm. but like i said martin goodman gave them 20 issues you know total which is a lot for him yeah right exactly well it was four different titles right so it's you know he gave them each four or five, uh, you know, two to ten, basically, uh, issues to try. Didn't work, so he canned them. Um, so, you know, the rest of the line is still going on. He's, he's, they're still putting out comics. Lee can't say he didn't get a chance, right? Like, he's like, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. you know, Martin said we were only getting a little bit of time. Uh, so let's go back to doing romance. Let's go back to doing westerns. Let's do some army you know, let's some some war stories, and most of all, let's do a bunch of monster books because that's what's selling. That's what's big at this point, right? This is now the era of the Twilight Zone, and you know that kind of thing. Um, and science fiction, especially like you know invasions of crazy monsters, you know, it's, uh, uh, kind of thing, is what is selling, and they are churning them out. Uh, you know, at at the time, Don Rico, Al Jaffe. Uh, who will be much more famous for Mad Magazine later? Or, or people are doing the uh, doing the writing alongside Stan. Vince Burgess comes back. Joe Manili, Gene Colan, Russ Heath, uh, uh, John Severin comes in towards the end of this, and also the first time Stan Lee and Steve Ditko uh, will ever work together um, is during this kind of like run in the fifties. Uh, Jack Kirby will show up at the end of it. Now, remember, when, if you've listened to the Jack Kirby episode, Jack Kirby believes in his, deep in his heart that Stan Lee is the one who, the person who ratted him and Joe out to Martin Goodman back in 1941 that cost them the Captain America job, right? That Stan Lee is the one who told Martin Goodman they're trying to like, negotiate for a better deal over at All-American. And so Kirby has not trusted Stan Lee literally since he was 17 years old. <laughs> right? I mean, like, that's how long Kirby has known him. And so Kirby very much does not want to work with him. But, you know, there's only so many publishers that are out there, right? There's only so many places that he can get freelance work. And he doesn't want to stop doing comics. 
Right. So Kirby kind of, you know, swallows his pride a little bit and, you know, goes back to work, even though he still, you know, personally does not trust Lee as his boss. Uh, he is still, you know, doing, doing art, doing monster books and science fiction books and that kind of thing. Cause you know, he's not getting along with anybody at DC either. Once again, if you listen to the Kirby uh, story, uh, there's a whole lot of publishers that Jack Kirby winds up eventually not getting along with. Most of them, really. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and you, and once again, it's you know, at this point, uh, Martin Goodman is like, find out what sells. Like every month, he looks at the sales lists, sees a new title on it, and says, "Oh, what's this? Uh, this seems to be selling," and goes to Stanley and says, "I want a comic just like that." Do me one of those, right? <laughs> I see that Casper the Friendly Ghost is, in fact, a really popular character here in 1955. You know, his <laughs> sales are shooting to the top of the charts. Give me one of those. Two months later, Atlas Comics is publishing Homer the Happy Ghost. <laughs> Literally that close a ripoff, <laughs> right? Like a actually trying to like, it's like, it's like the Asylum, uh, you know, st uh, movie studio, right? It's like, we're literally trying to fake you out into buying the wrong comic. Atlantic. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, like what, 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 what's, what's big out there? Dennis the Menace. Dennis the Menace is huge in, in uh, you know, in, in newspaper strips. He's selling a crap load of them. Two months after Dennis the Menace appears for it, Atlas has Melvin the Monster, <laughs> which is a story about a, you know, five-year-old prankster who just makes all of his neighbors miserable and, you know, says all this wacky stuff. And whatever. I mean, it's literally exactly the same character with a different name. <laughs> and this is the, you know, this is the Atlas business model, right? It's, you know. The comics code gets uh, established. Once again, we have another episode about the comics code. It gets established in 1955, and basically, its existence and its insistence on you know the, the cleaning up crime comics and horror comics and that sort of thing uh, drives a boatload of publishers out of business. They rather than deal with it at all, they basically just fold up and quit. Between 1954 and 1956 the number of total titles produced by the comic book industry is cut in half. More than 15 publishers go out of business in 1954 alone. So it's a very bad time for this sort of thing. Um, fortunately, the, the, uh, the horror titles, quote-unquote horror titles that uh, Atlas are doing are not very scary, <laughs> right? They're mostly about invading monsters and UFOs and stuff like that. There's no gore. There's no axes. There's no blood. And there's no kind of like classic monsters, right? There's no vampires. There's no werewolves. You know, there's really, there's not even ghosts. Mostly it's invading aliens, right? So they, they pass the code. They can keep doing these. And so many publishers have gone out of business that they basically have, you know, like a line of freelancers out the door wanting to come work from because it's one of the last places that's still paying. Right. So in, starting in 1952, Martin Goodman gets a great idea. He says, uh, you know what? Well, in, in 1952, Atlas News basically is doing, he's doing all of his own distribution. And from 52 to 56, he's covering his own distribution through Atlas. He's, he's in getting all of his comics out to retail through his own business. And newsstands are drying up. Pulp magazines aren't really selling anymore. Slick magazines cost too much money. And there's not really kind of like the, the marketplace for them there used to be. So distribution as a business is kind of taking a beating in the mid-50s. And they start kind of consolidating down to fewer and fewer distributors. And Martin Goodman kind of takes a look at you know, what's happening. He sees the writing on the wall and says, you know what? I'm getting out of the magazine distribution business. I'm just going into the making of magazines business. And we're going to make our magazines a little nicer 
they're going to have better paper. They're going to have color pictures in them, that kind of thing for this. We're going to kind of like change our pulp style stuff into a more 50s and 60s style magazine. What like will eventually be like Playboy, right? They're, we're going to they're be, you know, square bound and that kind of thing. Um, and so he gets out of the distribution business. Well, that's a problem because now how are his, how are his comics going to get to market? Right. So he has to go to market and basically switches his distribution to the biggest remaining distributor which is American news. He's with American news as a distributor from 56 to 57. It lasts for a year, a little more than a year. And then ANC American news gets hit with a bunch of antitrust lawsuits because a, they now have a monopoly on a business that's dying, right? They've like, they've, they've wound up kind of like crossing the laws that exist for monopolies, mostly because so many of their competitors have gone out of business. And you know what? It turns out they did kind of actually like help get their their you know companies out of business. And you know they were kind of mob tied. So the government uh, starts taking a look at American News and its business. And American News is uh, ordered to divest its newsstands that it owns because that's too much of a monopoly for them to control both sides of the distribution. Mm -hmm. American News looks at that and says, "Well, we can't make a living just doing magazines on our own if we can't sell cheap to our own newsstands." So screw it, we're just going out of business entirely. <laughs> so suddenly in 1957, the biggest magazine distributor in the world just goes out of business, just goes away, right? And they were one of the few people who were making any money. So now he's got no distribution. Goodman doesn't want to like restart his old company, right? Like he just got out of that business a couple of years ago. So he has to turn to the number two guys and say, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I want my comics to be distributed by you. Well, the number two guys are independent news. And independent news, unfortunately for Martin Goodman, is owned by national periodicals. In other words, they're owned by his number one competitor, DC. So the only publisher that he can like go to, or the only distributor that he can go to, is owned by the company that's kicking his butt out on the newsstands right now. That is, in fact, the number one comic book publisher in the country right now. He doesn't have a choice, right? He's not, he doesn't have the money to start up his own to go into business again for himself. So he's got to take this deal. And DC is like, why would we bring on as a customer somebody who is our competitor for comics? And he's like, well, because I don't want to go out of business and I need a distributor. And DC says, okay, here's the deal. We will, in fact, take you on, but we don't want you to ever turn. We don't want you to get better as a company, right? Like, we don't want you to get too big. We don't want you to become a like real competitor. If you were another company, if you were closer to us in sales, we wouldn't do this deal at all. But since you're smaller than us, we'll go ahead and do this, but we're going to put some things into your contract that will keep you from ever getting big enough to be a threat to us. And the first thing we're going to do is you can only publish eight titles a month. This is, of course, like Martin Goodman, you know, publishes a crap load of stuff a month, right? Like, I mean, he's always throwing new things out there and they say, nope, you are stuck to eight titles a month. And so Goodman's like, okay, well, we've got to cancel like a third of our line. Uh, you know, we've got to lay off a bunch of our people, but we will just publish eight, pub eight titles a month. I guess we're, you know, slowly getting out of the comic book. Business. And he goes to the offices for the first time in a while, right? They're no longer in the Empire State Building. They've got another cheaper office downtown. And he shows up at Stan Lee's office and says, 
here's the deal. We got to cut down to only eight titles. You know, let's see, like, who who do we need to keep? Who who are we who are we uh, getting rid of? And he opens up a closet door in the office, and he sees there's a whole lot of like page after page, pages and boxes of like file boxes and stuff full of penciled complete pages that were never sent to the printers that they never published. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what the heck is this? What, what, what is all this stuff? And Stan says, well, you know, sometimes a, uh, an author or sometimes a writer, a scripter or an artist can't finish something on time. And we don't want to miss a monthly title, you know, like going out the door. So these are, this is our inventory stock. This is all the titles that we have, all the comics that we have in case somebody isn't ready with theirs on a deadline, we can go to one of these and put it out instead. Mm-hmm. Right. This is our, this is our backup plan. And Goodman is like, why is our backup plan a whole closet full of these things? How often do we actually like, you know, uh, miss a deadline that we need so much inventory? And Lee's like, well, you know, it's really hard for me to say no to some people. And sometimes <laughs> somebody like really needs a check, you know, and that kind of thing. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to stay friends with all of these guys and make sure they give them some work. So, you know, sometimes I've, I've ordered a few more inventory titles that we needed or somebody has turned something in. And it's like, well, we can't use it right now, but we'll cut you a check for it and we'll put it in the closet in case we need it. And Stanley has apparently been such a softy about this that they now have just shelves of unpublished comics. And so Goodman says, you know what? We're, we're, we're going down to eight titles. Not only that, we aren't even doing new stuff anymore. You don't get to like hire any new people until we have worked through this backlist. <laughs> I want you to publish all of these comics that we've already paid for and not to buy any new ones until you're done publishing all of this. Right? Right. So Atlas basically shuts down as a as a new publisher, as a as a potential place for people to work because they've got so much of a backlog of stuff to put out. Uh, that they can't afford to pay. They're not. They're not paying any new writers or artists for any work. And that's when Stanley. Uh, that's when Jack Kirby has to leave uh, Atlas again, and eventually, you know, like winds up working for some other people. They're, it's kind of like a meltdown, basically, right? So there's a mass firing of all of the freelancers, all of the you know staff writers, all of the artists, and Stanley is now working by himself in an office. Right? He has literally comes in every day and is the only person in the office. Uh, putting out comics based on this random collection of different titles, most of which have been sitting in the in the in the in the cupboards for several years, right? So Atlas is now over the next year or two starts to get a reputation for like, man, their comics really seem kind of old fashioned, <laughs> right? Here we are in 1956 or whatever, and you're publishing this these comics that's using slang from like 10 years ago, <laughs> you know? Like, what's up with that? And so you know, Lee does to his credit does what he's told right and does this basically and this goes on for a couple of years and finally he goes back to martin goodman and says you know what here's the problem we bought all of this art you know what i've got left to try to do for this is in genres that don't even sell that well anymore mm-hmm. right if you want to actually keep up with what's going on in comics right now if you want to make any money doing this we've got to stop putting out these old fashioned comics and catch up with what's new. Mm-hmm. We've got to actually like do, you know, like some 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 new things or we might as well just close. Right. And Goodman says, "Okay, that actually makes some sense, and I appreciate that you have, you know, cleared out many of the boxes in here if not all of them. So, you know, I will give you permission uh to hire back a couple of people, um but you can't pay them anywhere near what you were paying them before." 
because that's ridiculous. We're spending too much money and you can't do any of these, you know, like sweetheart deals uh, and, you know, taking on stuff that we're not going to actually like publish at the time. You just have to do it out the door. But, and, you know, anybody who will come work for us cheap at these new cheap rates that I am offering, you can go ahead and do that. And so Lee, once again, turns around back out to all of his freelance friends and tells them, here's the deal. If you're willing to work for us, we're paying half of what DC pays. <laughs> but if you don't have a job with DC, it's better than not having anything, right? Yeah. And so, you know, some of the people do come back who are willing to take, you know, Stan's calls, right? Because they all got fired by him a couple years ago, you know? Um, Kirby comes back. Uh, Steve Coe comes back. Joe Manili comes back. And that, that, that's pretty much it. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of like the bullpen here, right? Is, uh, is this, this collection of like four or five guys. And they go back to churning out mostly sci-fi, because that's what's cool again. Uh, mostly monster titles. And so the comics that they are putting out at this point now are going to sound kind of familiar to you, right? Because this is what, you know, the, the last Atlas comics are kind of like what was going on just as the age of Marvel was going was, was gonna to come about, right? The titles of the comics that Lee is now putting out are uh, Strange Tales, Amazing Adventures, Tales of Suspense, Tales to Astonish, you know, like uh, these, these titles, a bunch of which are going to turn into superhero titles eventually. But right now, they're still doing sci-fi. They're still doing Lee Kirby or Lee Ditko or Joe Manili, who mostly did the Westerns. He's doing Rawhide Kid, right, at this point. Uh, Patsy Walker is still going. Millie the Model is still going. Um, and so, you know, this new stretch of comics that is coming out from these titles, you know, from this small handful of creators um, is the beginning of... It's the end of the Atlas era and the beginning of Marvel, because at this point now, Martin Goodman has changed companies again and doesn't want Atlas publishing, Atlas comic books to be associated with his, you know, no longer existing Atlas distribution company. And he changes the name of the company again. He says, you know what? I always liked that name, Marvel. Marvel Mystery, man. That was our best-selling title. We made a bunch of money off of that. We should just call ourselves Marvel. Let's bring that back. And so starting in summer of 61, all of the comics that are put out by this group that used to be Atlas are now published with Marvel Comics on the title. And now we have a company now that exists called Marvel Comics for the first time, even though it's got, you know, at that point, a 20-year history uh, as a publisher, more than 20 years as a publisher. It is now for the first time called Marvel. So Martin, you know, he's still making money selling his, mag his, his comics. Uh, selling his uh, pulp magazines, which are increasingly as, you know, like with the existence of Playboy, are turning harder and harder core to keep up, mm. right? Like once Playboy kind of like crosses that line and says, okay, we're going to have actual naked women in our comics, you know, and our comics are, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, like how cool it is to have, you know, sex with people you're not married to, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, Hugh Hefner is becoming a celebrity, right? This, right. this kind of thing for us. Those titles, those uh, uh, pulp titles that they were putting out um, are getting kind of, you know, they're, they're, the, 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 the marketplace has changed for them, right? And so either they go out of business, like uh, Bachelor Comics goes out of business, or they become basically, you know, what if you, you know, were around in the 70s and 80s, remember what Swank and Stag turned into, mm -hmm. right? So that's making still gobs of money. Um, and his son, Chip, is now working over there, right? Like Chip is now in charge of like the men's magazine department, even though he's like 20 at this point. 
and it's clear, you know, he is going to take over his dad's empire, right? He's come, he's, he's come along. He's, he's important with the company and Chip and Stan do not like each other. Right. Chip thinks that Stan is a big overblown showboat with a, you know, big mouth who thinks he's way more important than he is because he's making kids comics, you know, right. Whereas, and, and Stan thinks Chip is like, he hasn't earned anything, right? Like he's only here because of his dad, you know, he has no particular skill in any of this. He's just been handed this business by his dad. They can't stand each other and this will matter at some point in the future. Um, but to kind of like bring this to the end. So now we have a thing. Now we have Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. This next story is a famous story, but it's been told a bunch of different ways and nobody is really quite sure the real version of it. So I'm warning you that in advance, that the version of this story that I'm telling you may not be the real one, but it's close, right? Like there are different people involved or anything. Apparently Martin Goodman uh, goes out to play lunch, uh, to play golf, or have lunch, depending on different versions of the story, with somebody from either DC Comics or Independent News, right? So already we can't narrow this down like too too much too much beyond that. But I mean, Independent News is owned by National, DC is owned by National, so we know that at some point he went out and either ate lunch or played golf or both with somebody from those companies, from the the, the greater National company. Perhaps it was Jack Leibowitz. Perhaps it was Urban Donenfeld, who in person asked about the story, denies that it was him. Maybe it was an independent news salesperson, whatever, whatever, we don't know. One way or the other, in that conversation that he has, somebody with independent news or DC or something tells him what the sales figures on the Justice League of America comic were last month. And they're through the roof. They're berserk. The biggest selling comic in the world right now is this brand new title by DC, which takes all of their superheroes and puts them in one comic together, right? And is different from all of the superhero comics that used to be going on before. There were superhero team comics, you know, in the 40s, but they would always work the same way. There'd be like a framing story at the beginning mm -hmm. that like set up a bad guy. Uh, and the bad guy would have a bunch of henchmen or have plots going on all over the country. The heroes would find out about it. Then the heroes would split up and go have solo adventures where they dealt with some portion of the problem. And each one of those would be drawn and written by whoever it was who drew and wrote their own solo comic. So they wouldn't look anything like each other, right? Like every five or six pages, the art and writing style would completely change because it was a new guy you know, like the Starman portion of the Justice Society comic would look completely different from the Adam portion because they were drawn and written by different people who weren't even talking to each other, <laughs> right? right? And then they'd come back at the end and like they'd work together for the last two pages to beat the bad guy and that would be the end of the story. And Justice League is the first team comic to come out and not do this and say, you know what? It's much more interesting to see these superheroes interact with each other. What if Superman and Wonder Woman had to work together? What if the Flash and Green Lantern worked together to fight some bad guy? In fact, what if all five or six of them all had to work together on like a story and everything? It'll be a story about like the entire group of them and we'll make up some insanely powerful, completely nut job bad guy and just fight everybody. And it's great. And kids love it. Kids love it when Superman meets the Flash. This is the best thing ever. So Justice League is selling like your proverbial hotcake, right? 
And, you know, they can't help but brag about it at this supposed lunch slash golf meeting about like how much money is pouring into their, their, you know, coffers from this comic. So whatever, however that happened, Goodman comes back to the office after his lunch slash golf date or whatever, and says to Stan Lee, you know what? You always complain about us not having superheroes for this. I just heard about this super team comic that DC is making and it sold one bazillion copies. I want you to make me a superhero team. Let's give it a try ourselves. Let's rip them off. Let's let's you know if Justice League is making money, by God, you know it's the it's the Atlas slash Marvel way. Something out there is making money. Let's rip it off. <laughs> and so, and then he leaves. That's that's the sum total of his advice. Give me a superhero team. So Stan gets together with Jack Kirby, one of the few artists uh, you know still willing to work with him at the crap rates that they're paying, and says, you know what, we're going to make up a superhero team. And what, of course, they create is in fact the Fantastic Four, right? And they do it in a style that is very familiar to Marvel readers at that point who are used to their, their monster comics and their science fiction comics. He puts a team together of people. They don't wear superhero costumes. They are space explorers. They are trying to get to outer space before the commies, right? It's 1961. They sneak onto a base to, you know, use their rocket, and it is brilliant scientist Reed Richards and his uh, fiance Susan Storm, and Susan Storm's tag-along teenage kid brother Johnny, and then his best friend Ben Grimm, who's going to, you know, like pilot the rocket, and they basically steal their rocket and become the first human beings in space. However, they are unprepared for the level of cosmic rays uh, that strike them at this point. Uh, and they are mutated, and their rocket comes crashing back to Earth. And when they come out of the rocket, that's you know like crashed, uh, you know, in a in a forest somewhere. Each of them has been transformed into effectively a monster, into a monstrous-like superhero. Right, Mister Fantastic can now you know bend and stretch and and deform his body in ways that are kind of like comically funny sometimes, but also occasionally kind of horrifying. Right. The Human Torch, Johnny Storm, gets the powers of that character that was one of their best characters all along. The Human Torch, he's great. He bursts into fire and flies around and he controls fire. Well, that's really dangerous, <laughs> right? If you're the guy standing next to him when he bursts into fire. Let's talk about that. Let's like, you know, like describe him as a character. Sue Storm, because Stan and Jack are pretty sexist at this point, uh, basically only gets the power to turn invisible. She just fades away. Um, which is, you know, not the greatest power, but it's, you know, still kind of cool and weird and, and spooky. And worst of all, Ben Grimm turns into an actual honest-to-goodness monster of the exactly the sort of monster that Lee and Kirby have been turning out for years for Atlas and then for Marvel, right? He's, his skin is kind of, you know, kind of rocky and dinosaur-like, and he's huge and he's ugly and he's terrifying. Children run away from him on the sidewalk and everything for us. And he's, you know, one of, he's a miserable life. And unlike the other members, he can't turn back, right? right? Like Reed and Sue and, jo and Johnny, they all can pretend to be normal people, but Ben can't. Ben is stuck in this form. And so in this first adventure, uh, you know, Reed calls his team together. The first few issues are them terrifying the public by, you know, like appearing with their powers. And then it turns out uh, the Mole Man is, uh, you know, is revealed as a bad guy. And the Mole Man is this guy who was like too ugly to live on the surface, basically, has been driven underground by people making fun of him, where he met a bunch of monsters, made friends with them, 
uh, became their king and is now trying to conquer the world by like stealing nuclear power plants by like tunneling underneath them and stuff and just generally terrorizing the country. And our heroes have to fly to Monster Island uh, and defeat him in once again in a plot that is basically straight out of one of their horror slash monster comics, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, but what it does is it gives a kind of humanity, a, a, a level of, uh, of interaction between the characters that had never appeared in a comic book, that had never, certainly never appeared in a superhero story before. As Grant Morrison likes to joke, Stanley and Jack Kirby basically gave their characters a second dimension. <laughs> right they still weren't three-dimensional but pretty much everybody before that had been one-dimensional right. you know like these characters could not get along with each other these characters could fight they could argue they would have relationships that were like more complicated than just you know patting each other on the shoulder and saying that's right chum you know kind of thing they could actually like interact like they were human beings you know, uh, Reed was in love with Sue, but he was afraid that like she didn't love him and wasn't sure that, you know, she was that he was right for her and certainly didn't know if he could keep her safe. It was too dangerous for her to be out there. So like he's, you know, torn over his romantic relationship with the teammate. Reed also feels enormous guilt for what he's done to Ben, right? Like, I mean, Ben didn't want any of this. You know, he's got no place else to go. He's a member of the team because he can't go anywhere else. And Reed promises to dedicate his life to, you know, among other things, to trying to find a cure for him, you know, for his dear best friend. And the two of them will be, you know, like at each other. We'll just, you know, like Ben's anger at Reed for doing this and Reed's guilt will be, you know, one of like kind of the key themes of their character relationships going on for the next 60 years, right? Like there's, there's easily, we, we haven't run out of stories about these things yet, right? So these characters have this amazing level of depth, once again, in context, and they look great because it's Jack Kirby, you know, is at the height of his powers here for this. And it is selling to an audience that is already primed to see monster comics. And in fact, the, if you look at the cover of Fantastic Four number one, it looks like a monster comic, right? If you don't know what's, who these characters are, what's going on, the main character in the book seems to be that monster that's busting out of the, you know, from under, under the street, right. right? He's the biggest and most important character, right? Okay, Human Torch is flying around over his head. And for some reason, the Mr. Fantastic is tied up. You know, and he's using his powers and like stretching weirdly to get out of the ropes. But if you don't know what he can do, he just looks like a badly drawn, like somebody who doesn't know anatomy, right? Like drew a, drew a dude. And then, you know, the thing is off in the side and he's pushing a car away and saying, all right, all of you guys get out of the way. I'll take care of this, you know? So like the, the cover doesn't tell you these guys are superheroes, right? The cover tells you they're monsters. The, the cover tells you this is a monster fighting monster comic. And so a lot of the crowd that picks it, that picks it up, the fans, of course, of the, you know, that first issue, um, aren't, aren't really sure what they're getting when they get this. They may have bought it thinking it's a monster comic because that's what Marvel does, mm -hmm. you know? And they read the story, and it's not like anything they've ever read before. And their only competition on the, you know, for superhero fans out there for it is that kind of like pap, basically, that the Justice League and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman or whatever have been selling them throughout the Silver Age for the first five years of the Silver Age, you know, with characters who are all super good all the time, who never have any problems in their personal lives, who are all super friendly with each other. And they look at this and they're like, you know, wow, what is happening in this comic? This is amazing. Right. 
And so basically with this one comic that was kind of, you know, like forced on them, it, it, it's dated November, 1961. Uh, so it shipped on August 8th and it changed the world, right? I mean, like at that point, when that comic came out, the silver age was transformed into the age of Marvel. And we'll start talking about the age of Marvel, I guess, uh, starting in the, the, you know, the next episode. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great place to leave off. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us and we hope you join us next time for Marvel part three, the age of Marvel. Um, I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Have a good evening. Thanks for coming. <laughs>